Hi, everybody. Jimmy DeYoung, way up here in Michigan, Gaylord, Michigan. We're here in temporary studios in Gaylord. We're going to be at the Grace Baptist Church for Saturday and Sunday night. We were here last night, had a great meeting, people coming in who listened to us on WBLW. Now, that's the radio station, FM 88.1 on the dial, the Living Word. And our broadcast has been on up here for so many, many years. We so appreciate the radio station, which is a part of the ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We'll have a meeting this afternoon. There's going to be a cookout, I think, at 4.30, then at 6 o'clock, Prophecy Q&A. 7 o'clock, I'll be teaching the prophetic word of God. And all day tomorrow, we'd love to invite you to come join us at the Grace Baptist Church here in Gaylord, Michigan. We have our six broadcast partners standing by. First, we're going to Ken Timmerman. Ken deals with the geopolitical activities in our world. And Ken, it looks like when we spoke last time together about Russia and their troops there at the Ukrainian border. Looks like they're withdrawing those troops. What's the latest on that situation? Well, Jimmy, we dodged a bullet, I think, on this one. This was a very close call. The Biden administration has reacted quite dramatically to the Russian buildup in Ukraine. The Russians have been calling this an exercise, a military exercise. That doesn't mean that it was a military exercise. They've used that excuse in the past during the Cold War in particular. And one of the Cold War scenarios for a Russian massive invasion of Central Europe was precisely this, a big military exercise that then becomes a military invasion. They did the same thing in Georgia, by the way, also in 2008. So we dodged a bullet. This was a close call. The U.S. military was on very high alert over this past week. Uh, because this was happening at the same time that the Chinese were threatening Taiwan and that we saw a heating up of the conflict in Syria with Iran. So all of these things were happening at the same time, and uh, I believe this was a test by Russia and China and Iran of the Biden administration to see how they would respond, and their response was lacking, was really quite weak. You know, that brings up the question that uh, the senator from Arkansas has, Senator Cotton, who made the statement that uh, China is ready to take over Taiwan, and the United States had better make it clear whether they're going to defend Taiwan or not. What, what do you think the situation is going to develop into? Could it be a war, or will China back down? Uh, well, look, the Chinese are threatening war. They're being being pretty clear about this. They have been flying uh, fighter bombers over Taiwanese airspace, over the island, and claiming that they are flying over sovereign Chinese territory. They have been building up their amphibious assault forces to be able to actually launch an assault on Taiwan. They are calling the overflights of Taiwan as combat drills. Even their aircraft carrier has been steaming along the side of the island. And what does the United States do? Not an awful lot. And not really talk about it much, not really talk to the Chinese much, not deploy our own naval forces as a deterrent. Again, I think the Russians and the Chinese are coordinating. 
their operations here. I think they are testing the Biden administration to see whether they will be strong or not. And they're finding that they are not particularly strong. So this is a real problem. This is a real problem. And uh, uh, (laughs) I I believe weakness always leads to war. Weakness does lead to war. That may be a possibility at any of these hotspots that we're talking about. By the way, uh, in baseball lingo, they talk about the boys of October. I've heard it said, and I saw a headline the other day, China and Russia. They're the boys of April, and looks like they are getting very active during this month at least. What is this preparing for? Do you think it's just making maneuvers to try to get in position stronger politically and otherwise militarily, or what is the deal? Well, the guns of April, remember, the guns of August, that was World War One. the guns of April, uh, this Chinese-Russian uh, coordination, coordination. Again, going back to Ukraine just for a second, Jimmy, the Russians had tens of thousands of troops there. Uh, they actually carried out an amphibious assault on Crimea to demonstrate their capability of going into Crimea again should they need to. Now, remember... They militarily occupy Crimea today, but they wanted to demonstrate that they were capable of launching an amphibious assault against hostile territory uh, with tank traps along the beaches, much as, you know, the Nazis had set up in Normandy in 1944 before the U.S. uh, invasion on D-Day. So, you know, this is serious business here, and we just don't see a serious business from Uh, the Biden administration. And that's why I think you have somebody like Tom Cotton, who is a serious senator, a former serviceman, remember, served in Iraq, uh, saying that we need to make it absolutely crystal clear that we will defend Taiwan, that Taiwan is an ally of the United States. And we have not made that clear at all. Let me get back to the Middle East just for a moment with you, Ken. Looks like that Syria was possibly targeting the so-called nuclear site, now we say so-called because we're not absolutely positive. Israel has never claimed that Dimona in Israel is their site where their nuclear operation is headquartered. But looks like the Syrians are targeting it. Do you know anything else about that? Yes, Jimmy, I believe. So this was a um, S-200 uh, air defense missile, but it had a warhead of several hundred kilometers. The reports coming out of Israel are sketchy so far, but they claim that it was probably headed towards Demona. Now, Demona is a nuclear reactor, so it is a nuclear site. Uh, what, what the Israelis have not announced is that that's where they're building nuclear warheads. But we do know it is a nuclear site, and uh, the Iranians had been threatening for weeks now to retaliate against Israel's strike on their Natanz uranium enrichment facility uh, where they took out the power and probably wiped out uh, several hundred of their newest and quickest centrifuges. So I believe this was an Iranian-directed missile strike aimed at Demona, or at the very least aimed to let the Israelis know as a warning, as a warning strike, to let the Israelis know that they could target Demona with more accurate missiles than this really uh, older generation uh, Russian-supplied S-200 air defense missile. At the same time, of course, Israel has been intensifying their air war against Iran and their locations there in Syria, 
trying to shut them down. So this probably may well have motivated Syria to go and target Dimona. Would that be a probably good guess or very definite decision made? Well, again, I think that this was an Iranian decision to fire that missile because the Iranians have been threatening to do this for at least two weeks. Now, you mentioned Israel's airstrikes into Syria. These have been intensifying. They had over 500 strikes in 2020, and, and already they are expanding those strikes now in the first four months of this year. And here's what's really exceptional about it, Jimmy. Uh, last year, they were hitting Damascus, which is not very far from Israel. They were hitting Aleppo which is pretty close to Israel. Recently, they have taken to overflying the entire Syrian territory, the entire Syrian landmass, to the furthest point in the east at Abu Kamal, which is a crossing point into Iraq that the Iranians have been using as their land bridge. We we talked about this really for quite some time now, about the Iranians establishing a land bridge from Iran through Iraq into Syria so they could get close to the Israeli border to bracket Israel from the east, the north, and the south. Well, Israel is now striking back at that land bridge in Abu Kamal, areas that the Iranian Revolutionary Guard have fortified. They have been building a series of fortified underground bunkers. And we learned from uh, an old friend of mine, uh, uh, Yossi Kuprevasser, who used to be the head of the analysis wing of Israeli military intelligence. I mean, uh, we learned from Kuprevasser that some of these bunkers are stretched for uh, 10 kilometers long underground. So Israel has been using bunker busting bond- bombs to go after them. It's a real slog and extraordinary feat for the Israeli Air Force. They're going over all of Syria, all of those air defense missiles. All of the Russian S-400 missiles and S-300 missiles, which are much more accurate and more modern than the one that was launched against Demona a couple of days ago, and they are doing it without a single missile being fired against them. Interestingly, that Iran still at the task trying to put their military operation close enough to Israel so they can follow through with the prophetic scenario found in God's Word to try to wipe the Jewish state off the face of the earth. Though we have not been talking about it, they're still busily at work, are they not, Ken? Well, yes, they are, Jimmy, and that is their goal. They uh, repeatedly say that their intention is to wipe Israel off the map, but they know they're in a cat-and-dog fight here. This is a direct confrontation between Israel and Iran that is taking place right now, right before our eyes, and almost nobody is talking about it. We are really (laughs) among the very few people talking about this on these airwaves here now, uh, our listeners need to understand this is a war that has already begun between Israel and Iran and is taking place in the territory of Syria. And we're witnessing it with our good broadcast partner, Ken Timmerman, the man who covers the geopolitical activities for us. By the way, we've read the last chapter and we know who is going to win that conflict. Ken, thank you so very much. We appreciate your insight. You always ring the bell when you step forward to help us understand these events happening in our world. Thank you. We'll have another conversation next week. Thanks so much, Jimmy. The red lights are flashing. God bless. The red lights are indeed flashing. We're going to have to take a quick break. When we come back, David Dolan's standing by. He's going to give us his Middle East news update. That's all ahead right here 
on Prophecy Today. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end-times prophecy book that God has preserved in His Scriptures for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's Revelation, A Chronology, call us toll-free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. I want to remind you that I do have a website. It's prophecytoday.com. This is a full-service website. It will assist you in your study of Bible prophecy. For example, I have a prophecy bookstore with a number of materials that will help you as you study through the prophetic passages of God's Word. I have a number of books, DVD documentaries, and five-hour audio series on the subject of Bible prophecy. I have a prophecy Q&A section, and then I list the top ten news stories on a daily basis. These are news stories that seemingly are setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. And I will give you a prophetic perspective on those news stories. That website that you should bookmark is prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. Remember, we're here in Gaylord, Michigan, temporary studios set up. I'll be at the Grace Baptist Church tonight, all day Sunday. We had a great meeting last night because of the listeners from WBLW. We've been on the air here with them and our weekend broadcast for many, many years. This is The Living Word, 88.1 on the FM dial. Well, as promised, we're going to David Dolan. He's the man who has a Middle East news update, longtime journalist in that region of the world. And David, the first question has to be, Do you believe that Syria purposely targeted Demona in this attack that happened just the other day? Well, Jimmy, I can only quote the experts, really, because uh, not being on the scene and not being inside of the (laughs) command and control centers, etc., it seems growingly likely, and uh, U.S. General McKenzie actually said this in the Senate on Thursday in some testimony about another issue, that the Syrians accidentally sent a S-5 rocket down into southern Israel. In other words, they fired it, but uh, it is now believed they were trying to hit some Israeli jets that they believed were coming up to Damascus to uh, strike some Iranian targets and maybe some Syrian targets there, and that the rocket overshot came into Israeli airspace, and the Israelis, this is the latest information, they tried to shoot it down with their anti-aircraft defense system, 
and uh, that's why the explosions were heard around Jerusalem and even further to the west towards the coast. Some people right in the Tel Aviv area even reported hearing explosions, but they say that was Israeli anti-aircraft missiles exploding. But the rocket did go all the way down, as you say, almost to the Demona nuclear reactor, just about 20 miles away, and it hit a factory in an Arab town down there and blew apart, and they found remnants of it, so they know for sure it was a Syrian rocket. And that is a long distance. The big mystery, Jimmy, is how it could have gone that far, because they're only supposed to fly about 150 miles, and this was well over 200 miles that it would have flown if it was fired from near Damascus. So there's still some mystery around it, but it definitely could have been aimed at Demona. And, of course, that's always Israel's worst nightmare, that its enemies, Hezbollah or Iran or Syria uh, or all three, will try to attack and destroy that nuclear reactor, which would, of course, release radiation like Chernobyl, like happened in Japan as well. Ironically, with the prevailing weather patterns, that would mostly head in the direction of Jordan, Iraq, and Iran on a normal day. So uh, that may be an incentive not to strike it. But the Russians have tried in the past, and there's been other attempts from the Gaza Strip, so it's not the first time that a rocket landed in that area. But uh, very jolting, and people in half the country heard those explosions in the middle of the night, early Thursday morning, so you can imagine how they felt. David, you mentioned there was a nuclear reactor there at Dimona. However, is it not projected that uh, that would be the headquarters for the nuclear operation for the state of Israel? Well, in terms of nuclear production, yes. Uh, there's another facility just south of Tel Aviv that is more into the research, I would say, before any actual production of uh, rockets or missiles takes place. But certainly the raw material for that is coming mostly from Demona, and it's a very important site. Israel's had it since the 60s. Definitely hitting it would be a very bad situation. Israel has reinforced it several times. They have anti-aircraft batteries all around it. And, Jimmy, in the last year, they've been building additional buildings near it. So uh, it's an expanding facility. And, of course, Iran did call an Iranian paper earlier in the week for Demona to be struck in retaliation for the attack on the uh, Iranian nuclear facility that we spoke about the week before. So um, it could well have been deliberate, but at, at any case, it didn't hit the reactor. But that is always Israel's worst nightmare. David, talk to me about uh, the situation there in the old city of Jerusalem. Extremist Jews and Arabs going after each other. What's the latest on that? Yeah, Jimmy, it's been the worst rioting in Jerusalem in some time uh, over the past, really, 10 days. But it's intensified in recent days. And I might add, not just in Jerusalem. There were, were riots overnight on Thursday and Friday in uh, Yavne and some other towns around Tel Aviv and uh, in Jaffa in particular, old Jaffa right uh, on uh, the south of Tel Aviv. So it's spreading to different parts of the country, but most intense in Jerusalem. As I said last week, it started when the police ordered uh, Muslims not to uh, lounge around in the steps to the Damascus Gate area. They were just sitting there, and especially with Ramadan, some were sitting up all night. They asked them to go home, and that started protests. And then right-wing Jews, as you said, young people, young guys in particular, came out. 
to enforce that, and there's been clashes between the two sides ever since. So a tense situation, and 50 people, in fact, were arrested on Friday alone. But, Jimmy, the prayers at the Temple Mount, the Muslim prayers, did go off peacefully. There was a great deal of concern those would be riotous as well, but that didn't take place. Let's look at the political arena just a moment with you, David. Looks like Prime Minister Netanyahu is kind of giving up trying to form a new government. What's the latest on that? Yes, just hours after I told you last week that Naftali Bennett and Netanyahu had had very successful talks and looked like they were on the way to forming an agreement that would leave Netanyahu just a couple seats short of a majority, the talks fell apart and they started to blast each other and blame each other. And what happened really is the news came out that Bennett was secretly negotiating with Yair Lapid, the opposition leader currently, to uh, join a government that uh, he would lead and that the two would rotate as prime minister. That uh, deal apparently is still being discussed, Jimmy. But uh, Netanyahu has no chance without Bennett of forming uh, a government, so he has stopped trying, in fact, but he's going to hold his mandate from the president until it expires on May 4th, and then it's expected on May 5th, Yair Lapid will be asked by President Rivlin to make an attempt himself. But he doesn't even have to ask anybody else. He could just say, you're going back to elections right now. The president could say, I don't see anybody strong enough to form a government. Of course, Netanyahu wants to change the system and have a vote directly for prime minister. Uh, Israel tried that in the 90s uh, over a couple elections. It wasn't very successful. But uh, he's saying, we'll just elect one of us to be the leader. That one will have the mandate automatically. And even if it's a minority government, he'll remain as prime minister. So we'll see if that goes anywhere. Speaking of elections, the Palestinians supposedly, and I say supposedly, I understand about a 90% chance there will not be Palestinian elections. But if they do have them, Israel must be concerned because there are even some terrorists that are running for president of the Palestinian Authority. Talk to me about that. Well, Jimmy, and uh, as I mentioned last week, uh, the only parliamentary elections uh, that uh, were held were in 2006, and uh, Hamas won them. So Hamas is a terrorist organization. They're all, I would say, uh, terrorists in the leadership there and in the, and all of their representatives will support those sorts of stands. So it's not just the presidency, which could go to uh, one of these radicals, but uh, the parliament itself. So there is a real concern in Israel about it. They're not even sure they're going to allow elections to be held anywhere around Jerusalem. In fact, the Israelis say they won't. Since that's part of sovereign Israel, they shouldn't be voting in another country's election, essentially. Palestinians are protesting that, and that may be the excuse that they use to not hold elections, because, of course, the PLO, the PA, does not at all want to see Hamas strengthened any further than it already is. And uh, the polls are showing that they would probably triumph again if those elections are held. It's always very important, David, we get a hold of you because your Middle East news update is key for those of us who are students of Bible prophecy. And what I like about you, David, is that you know Bible prophecy as well as being an experienced journalist and covering this region of the world. 
It's exciting to talk about the news that seemingly is setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled, isn't it, David? It is, Jimmy, and uh, I'm thrilled to be able to report on these things in the sense that, as you say, I also know that they're ultimately leading to the establishment of the kingdom of God fully on earth with the Messiah, Jesus, Yeshua, ruling in Jerusalem. And all these troubles were predicted by the Lord. Uh, these alliances we're seeing forming, Turkey, Russia, Syria, all these things, as you well know and teach about, were also told, foretold in the scriptures in many places. So we're seeing it all unfold right before our eyes. And that's the good news in the midst of some pretty bad news on a daily basis. And that's why we have David Dolan at the broadcast table on a weekly basis with us here on Prophecy Today. Thank you, David. We'll talk again next week. Thank you, Jimmy. God bless. We're going to take a break, come back with Itamar Marcus, Palestinian Media Watch. He'll give us further insight on what's happening in the Palestinian election process. All ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible prophecy student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on Bookstore or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. We're here in Temporary Studios in Gaylord, Michigan. We're going to have a weekend radio rally. Well, at least that seems like it. Last evening, we had a great service to kick it off. And then this afternoon, there's going to be a special time, a cookout. They're going to have, I think, from around 4.30 till 6, check the time with the church, Grace Baptist Church, the radio station, and then we'll all get together on all day Sunday. I'll be speaking on Saturday night and Sunday all day at Grace Baptist Church. Looking forward to being able to get with and meet and talk with many of you who are our listeners on WBLW, The Living Word, at 88.1 on the FM dial. I want to thank this radio station for carrying Prophecy Today weekend for so, so many years. We appreciate these guys and thank them so very much. Well, let's get back to work talking with our broadcast partners. We're going to Itamar Marcus. We haven't talked with Itamar for a couple of months now, it seems like, but uh, he's still been at the task. Palwatch.org is their website, Palestinian Media Watch, and he is keeping up with his team 
on top of what the Palestinian media is really saying, and it is key, especially at this time. Itamar, I wanted to talk with you. I've been reading and looking at some of your reports about the upcoming Palestinian elections. Before I get too deep into it, let me ask you, are those elections really going to take place? I understand there's about a 90% chance they will not happen. What's the latest? Well, it's quite ironic what's happening. The international community was pressuring the Palestinian Authority to be a democracy. There have not been elections since 2006 when Mahmoud Abbas was elected to a five-year term, so it's a little bit absurd, and they're giving them literally millions of dollars every year to promote democracy, and the Palestinian Authority has turned into a dictatorship. So the international community pressured the Palestinian Authority to have elections. Now, what happened is, because the Palestinian Authority is so corrupt, Hamas turned out to be more popular in the public opinion polls recently, and not only were they more popular, but Fatah, which is the ruling party and supposedly the moderate party, Fatah has split into three different groups, three different parties. So now the international community, who was pressuring the Palestinian Authority to have elections, is actually hoping that they cancel the elections. They're afraid of having a Hamas leadership of the Palestinian Authority. They won't be able to give them financial support anymore. They won't be able to promote them. And that will really isolate the Palestinian Authority as an organization. So, so what's happening now is the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas, he can't say that he's canceling the elections because he's so far behind in the polls. So what he's done is he's created this issue. He is saying that he won't have elections if Israel doesn't set up uh, six polling stations for him, for the Palestinians in East Jerusalem. Now, you realize there are hundreds of polling stations. There are millions of Palestinians who have to vote. We're talking here about a very, very small number of people. But he's using this as an excuse, uh, and in all likelihood, he will blame the cancellation of elections on Israel uh, for not allowing the, the voting in Jerusalem. The irony is, is that the Europeans, who ordinarily would have probably been furious at this, in the end, they're probably going to be happy that he's not having elections because they don't want to lose one they're willing to support. Well, you leave me with two questions after those statements you've just made. Number one, I understand there were to be two elections. One, the first one would be the election of the parliament, the Palestinian Authority, and then the next on the president of the Palestinian Authority, which is the position Mahmoud Abbas holds. Is that correct? There are two elections coming and both of them may be canceled? Correct. The, the first election is scheduled for May 23rd, that's for the Parliament, and then just a little over a month later they're scheduling to have elections for the presidency. And the reason why they're doing it separate is I think Mahmoud Abbas is afraid to have the presidential elections and lose them. And I think if he sees that, that Hamas actually takes over the Parliament, what he will do then is he will then come up with some excuse to cancel the presidential election. That way there could be at least a balance of power. Hamas running the parliament and he would be running the presidency, which has most of the power in any case in the Palestinian Authority. This way he's sort of leaving himself the option of staying in power. Had he done both elections on the same day, you could have uh, Hamas winning both the parliament and the presidency in one shot, and then uh, any semblance of, well, I say even a, even a even a facade of moderation would be gone, as Hamas would then be running 
the Palestinian Authority under its uh, Islamist principles of um, prohibiting peace with Israel, um, promoting jihad, promoting martyrdom, uh, all the things that the PA does privately, Hamas does openly. And Hamas, known around the world as being a, and recognized by many nations, as a radical Islamic terror organization. Is it viable, very viable, that Hamas could win the parliamentary elections should they take place? It's absolutely possible. You just have to remember that the previous election for the parliament in 2005, Hamas won a majority both in Gaza and the West Bank, Judea and Samaria. So there's somehow a false perception that the Palestinian Authority Fatah is more popular. They never were more popular. Yasser Arafat was popular, but Hamas, the only elections that they really ever had for parliament, Hamas won, both in the West Bank and in the Gaza Strip. So that's why it certainly is within the realm of possibility. There were some recent university elections in Judea and Samaria that were won by Hamas. The, the universities are sort of reflect the local population's uh, opinions. But people are disgusted with Abbas because of his corruption, not necessarily because of his attitudes toward Israel, but because of his corruption. He's stolen so much money. Um, 80% of Palestinians say the government is corrupt. 65% from, for years now have wanted him to resign. So there is a very, very distinct possibility that Hamas would win, even if the Fatah didn't split its vote in three Fatah parties. But now that Fatah has split three ways, in all likelihood, Hamas is going to run uh, the Palestinian parliament. And if that is the case, that would be very dangerous for the Jewish state of Israel, wouldn't it not? I don't think it'll be any more dangerous than the Palestinian Authority Fatah is. And let me explain to you why. Everybody thinks that Abbas is moderate, and therefore he is a safer bet for Israel. Abbas is, is teaching his people the identical messages. Israel has no right to exist. Uh, we have to conquer with jihad. His, his religious leaders tell the people that Israel, under Islam, has no right to exist. These are regular messages of, of the Palestinian Authority, so that the, the fundamental messages of the PA, the PA, Hamas, are the same. The difference is that the Hamas has been openly, and Israel can defend itself better against an enemy who openly declares their hatred of you. So this is why I'm not so fearful of a Hamas election, because I've seen the danger and the tragedy of having this so-called moderate uh, with international support who's been doing all these terrible things. If we end up with a Hamas who cannot get international support, it might bring the Palestinian Authority government closer to collapse and then possibly possibly uh, a more decent leadership that really wants peace with Israel, that really wants to bring up its children on healthy values, uh, may be the one to, to take over. So I don't think it's the end of the world of Hamas wins. One more question for you, Itamar. I understand that there is a terrorist who is in jail at this point in time, who is actually running for president against Mahmoud Abbas. Talk to us about that. Yes, Mawan Barghouti. He is sitting five life sentences for the murder of five people. He is one of the most popular Palestinians. In the latest polls, they asked if Mahmoud Abbas would run against the Hamas leader Ismail Haniya. Uh, they came out in essentially in a dead heat, 46%, 46%. But if Mawan Barghouti 
runs for Fatah against the Hamas leader, he wins by some 20%. So the irony here, you have Hamas is a terror organization. They come out even with Abbas, but if you have a terrorist who's in jail running, he ends up defeating, uh, defeating Hamas. So what you have is terrorism is what makes Palestinian leadership popular, and that's the tragedy here. Terrorism makes them popular. Mawan Barghouti, because he murdered five people, and was the head of the Tanzine and also the Al-Aqsa Martyr Brigade's terror organizations. That's why he would be president. Again, the, the, the insane thing for a Palestinian perspective is a president of a Palestinian authority has so many real issues to deal with, economic, social, uh, culture. There are so many things he has to do in leading the country. And this guy, Bawan Barghouti, knows nothing but terror. So they're willing to elect a president to be uh, who's a terrorist sitting in prison, who has no skills, no abilities, no experience. How is how is that country going to grow? How are they going to thrive? How are they going to survive? So that's the great tragedy. The Palestinian population has been so ruined by terror support for so many years, and by a government that constantly presents terrorists as heroes, that they're willing to vote for heroic terrorists to be their leader when he doesn't know the first thing about leadership. I've got to say, dear friends, listening in to this interview with Itamar Marcus, you can now understand why we had to have this report about the upcoming Palestinian elections, both the parliament and also for president. Itamar, what a service you offer not only to us here on Prophecy Today, but to the leadership of the world as well. I want to thank you and your team for doing that. And uh, I'm looking forward to another conversation. We'll have to stay on top of this story with you. Thank you so much, my good friend. We'll talk again real soon. You're very welcome. Great talking to you. Very important conversation with Itamar Marcus, focused on the Palestinian upcoming elections, if indeed there are going to be any Palestinian elections. We'll stay on top of that story with Itamar. Keep tuned here to Prophecy Today. Right now, another region of the world, that's the European Union. John Rood, the man that covers that area of the world, it's a key region because I do believe, as John does, that the European Union is the infrastructure for the revived Roman Empire. That makes it key for us to go to John on a weekly basis. And John, I understand that the Russians are backing away from the Ukrainian border. However, Pope Francis, he voiced great concern over the buildup of the military power of Russia there at the Ukrainian border. Is this the Pope getting involved in politics again, or what's this all about? I would say that's certainly the case. The Russian buildup has been quite notable. They had 41,000 troops in the border of eastern Ukraine, 42,000 troops in Crimea, certainly beyond anything they've done for military exercises. And so the Pope was joined in on the political side, expressing, quote, great apprehension. But as you mentioned, it does appear that Russia has begun to back off some of its forces. And this is very typical that, you know, we're getting these showing of force and exertion. That's how the nations are working with each other, and it's certainly the case here with Russia, Ukraine, Iran, and others. 
actually the Ukraine does not belong to either Russia nor does it belong to the European Union, does it, John? They're somewhat of a buffer zone between the two, are they not? Yes, Ukraine is an independent nation, of course, and they are leaning towards the European Union and would love to be a member. The European Union backs them up, certainly on some of the degrees of uh, democracy, etc., but really, Ukraine has been stuck between two in a very difficult position and has had an extremely deadly war these years in a position of needing great help. I understand that the United States and some of the European leaders have been gathered together with the Iranian leaders to discuss a renewing of the Iranian nuclear deal. However, now the European leaders are coming out and warning that nobody should attack the nuclear facilities of Iran. Is that focused on Israel or just in general they're speaking out this warning? I imagine that it's probably referring to Israel as they have been the ones Iran has mentioned concerning the explosion at their enrichment facility. This is another instance of what we're saying, exerting force, that uh, Iran has has now uh, moved ahead to 60% enrichment of their uranium, which is uh, beyond any civilian use. Yet the Europeans are now at the helm of what we call the E3. The E3 is the United Kingdom, Germany, and France. And so they're at the forefront of these negotiations that have gone on for some weeks in Vienna as well. But they're actually, as the statement was made that, that you're saying, they're saying that, you know, to condemn any of the non-diplomatic steps, anything non-diplomatic is being condemned at this moment. What would your thoughts be, John? Is the European leadership in favor of opening up again this nuclear deal for Iran and possibly allowing them to get a nuclear weapon of mass destruction? What's their mindset? Well, it's a bit of both concerns. They've always been on the side of keeping the deal and uh, economic benefits. And yet, if they realize there's a reality and a, you know, of nuclear development, they don't want to accept that, of course. So overall, it's been leaning towards economics, and yet it's something that can't be done necessarily without avoiding the other. The European Union announcing this week, very interesting development here, a $1.8 billion operation that's going to go out and combat anti-Semitism. Israel's very pleased with that. This is a very interesting move by the European Union, isn't it? Yeah, the EU has announced $1.8 billion as a whole comprehensive plan to combat anti-Semitism. Uh, any way you look at it, this is certainly a big budget. It's approximately double of what it was the year before. As we covered earlier, you know, with COVID, we've seen a sharp uptick in the anti-Semitic incidents in the EU over this last year. And so the EU is interested to implement this entire plan, $1.8 billion. It's huge, which is preventing, combating anti-Semitism. It's educating on Holocaust or remembrance and fostering Jewish life in Europe. Those are the objectives. So this is a good move. There's a good move, and it's done in a big way. Let me circle back to the Pope just a moment, John, before we have to conclude our conversation. Looks like Pope Francis is 
wishing the Muslims a very special blessed time during Ramadan. There's Catholicism joining with Islam. What about that development? Do you know anything else? Well, actually, it's a statement from the Vatican, uh, Pontifical Council for Interreligious Dialogue. But they've gone way beyond just simply, you know, well wishes. Uh, they use the statement that Christians and Muslims together are called to be bearers of hope, sending divine blessings. There seems to be a bit of syncretism here, as you mentioned. Uh, the Catholic Church is actually in Nigeria, where Christians are severely persecuted and many have died. The Catholic Church actually built a mosque in northern Nigeria. So it's a sort of what we would call political and religious correctness. Yet, uh, you cannot say that the God of Christianity is the same as the God of Islam. And uh, yet, to keep things on this certain level, uh, it continues with this type of voicing. And that's something we'll watch because that sounds like an end-time scenario from God's prophetic word. And that's why we go to John Rood on a weekly basis to deal with these issues political activities coming out of the European Union, setting the stage for the prophetic to be fulfilled. John, thank you very much. Appreciate it, good buddy. We'll talk again next week. Thank you very much, Jimmy. You know, when we hear John Rood give us a report on the political activities happening there in the European Union, it helps us to understand the prophetic scenario that is found in God's Word and how that is coming together from the political, the prophetic will follow. Well, here's a man that we love to have a conversation with. He always helps me to learn something when we have him on the radio with us. I'm talking about Dr. Don DeYoung. He is an astronomer, a scientist, written an excellent book on the heavens, and he got me excited about looking up and looking at the moon and the stars. By the way, Don, where I am here in Gaylord, Michigan, I was able to see the moon last night, so I appreciate you exciting me about looking into the heavenlies to see the glory of the Lord, and I sure am glad we have you along with us today. Now, I have two issues that I want to discuss with you, Don, the first one being the flight of the drone on Mars, the planet Mars. They did that by remote control. Boy, that was a very efficient scientific activity, was it not? Well, that is interesting, Jimmy, that they could uh, pull that off on a faraway planet. Uh, the first time that they've been able to uh, get in the air on another planet with this drone or helicopter uh, to look around a little bit. I understand that what they are looking for is some sign of life that they may be able to prove there was life in many millions of years ago there on Mars. Now, of course, you and I would not agree with that number many million years ago. But let me ask you, as a scientist, as an astronomer, do you believe they're going to be able to find any sign of life on Mars in their search for it this time? Well, you know, Jimmy, during this entire space age, and there's been a lot of looking around, a lot of probes, there's no evidence of life anywhere else other than the Earth, where, of course, we have abundant life. 
So it becomes more and more clear that God has especially prepared this earth and filled it with all kinds of uh, creatures, including uh, people as well. And, uh, you know, he's got his own purposes for space, but certainly uh, no aliens, no evolved life out there. Don, why is it you're a scientist in your community? Why are these scientists endeavoring, spending just billions of dollars to try to find some sign of life out there on those planets? What's driving these people? Well, that certainly does go on and on. I was counting them up, Jimmy, that there have been 49 probes to Mars, looking at lots of other details, but always with that idea of finding Martians, finding life. There just seems to be this need to reach out and make contact uh, with, with something else. Of course, missing the, the big picture of the Creator who's, who's all around us. So I think that's kind of the idea to um, search for some kind of comradeship out there and also to look for evidence for evolution. After all, if it did happen spontaneously on the Earth, then it should have happened many other places. And, of course, that's what we do not find. And their search, I imagine, is going to continue on until they come to a time of understanding. This has been a fruitless operation they've been involved in. Well, there's another issue I want to cover. The United States is hosting a climate change conference, endeavoring to try to go back into what Donald Trump got out of, a a program that will cause the world and the leaders of the world to do everything they possibly can to get rid of global warming or climate change, whichever they call it, whatever they're saying at that particular point in time. First of all, before I ask you if it's possible climate change out there, the United States and China have put together a deal where they're going to watch each other. Is there anything that really the Earth or any people on the Earth do to cause climate change in your opinion, Don? Well, certainly, Jimmy, uh, this big effort to reduce carbon dioxide emission is going to dominate our news for uh, the coming months. The fact is, uh, we have a lot of people in this world, close to 8 billion now. Certainly, we do have an impact on the earth and on, on the climate. But I tell you, Jimmy, what really amazes me is how little we do affect this world. With uh, that kind of population, it shows a, a strength an integrity that's been built into the details of this world to uh, handle this kind of population. So, yes, uh, humanity may tweak the climate a little bit. And, you know, as we mentioned before, uh, actually, the Earth climate is always changing. It's always making adjustments, whether it's to people or to natural phenomena. Well, is that a dangerous situation? Everybody seems to think it is. I was amazed when I heard the founder of the Weather Channel on television make a statement that, indeed, there was no such thing as a major climate change going on. Would you agree with him? I mean, there may be slight variances in the climate, but it's really not that big of a problem, is it? Well, I would certainly take a middle-of-the-road position. I'm not a, a climate change denier, but also not, you know, into the doomsday scenario. And actually, you know, these efforts to uh, watch the climate, uh, there's a positive side to this, Jimmy. It, it encourages new technology, more efficient ways to uh, live in this world. 
not that we're out to save the earth, that's beyond us, but the idea of caring for it um, with a balanced environmental approach, whether these people know it or not, they're following out the mandate to care for this world until the Lord returns. Now, we do know that things are going to go downhill. Uh, even the second law of Thermo says that all things are diminishing and uh, not really improving. But until the Lord comes, we certainly have responsibility to care for this earth as best that we can. Again, not that we care for the world, that we save it ourselves, but uh, we are in charge of it. And the bottom line, ultimately, God is going to take care of everything by Jesus Christ, the Creator, Colossians 1.16. Verse 17 says, He holds it all together. It's in God the Father and Jesus the Son's hands, and we're looking for a new heaven and a new earth anyway, aren't we? Well, certainly. And meanwhile, we have the promises in Scripture that the seasons will continue, you know, spring and summer and winter and fall. That's in the Lord's hands. And it's not the end of the world. You know, even during our lifetime, there's been this whole series of crises. They come and go. And so often uh, uh, technology is able to to solve these problems. And uh, this is just uh, the problem for today. I love to have a conversation with Dr. Don DeYoung. You can understand why if you've been eavesdropping on this conversation. Don, thank you so very much for your knowledge and being able to explain it in such a simple way that even a neophyte like me can understand it, but I'm sure our listeners appreciate so much every time I get together with you. Thank you, my good friend. We'll, I'm sure, have another conversation down the road. Thank you, Jimmy, for the visit. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, I've got one more broadcast partner, David James. He's standing by. We'll have a very important conversation you do not want to miss. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Hi, everybody. Jimmy DeYoung, and welcome back to Prophecy Today. We move into our last half hour. You've been able to hear five of our broadcast partners with very important information that you're not hearing on mainstream media. We have one more conversation that will be with David James in just a moment. I would like to ask you to take a moment and answer our poll question. It's located on the homepage of my website, prophecytoday.com. Here's the question. With Russia's recent activity at the Ukrainian border and her military presence in Syria, do you think that Russia is positioning herself to fulfill their leadership role in the last days as foretold by Ezekiel chapter 38. That's the poll question. Be sure to answer the question. I want to remind you that we are here in Gaylord, Michigan, in temporary studios because of the fact that we are here for the weekend at Grace Baptist Church. Services tonight, Prophecy Q&A at 6 o'clock, then I'll preach the prophetic word at 7 o'clock all day Sunday, 11 in the morning, 5 for Q&A in the afternoon, and 6 o'clock the final service. We now bring to this broadcast table David James. David and I have a conversation on a weekly basis here on Prophecy Today Weekend. 
for the purpose of focusing on an issue that may well be confronting the body of Christ. We want to assist in being able to have a biblical understanding as to how to deal with this issue for the purpose of being able to walk in the light of the Lord's word and his way for each and every one of us. This week, we want to start our portion of the program with some encouraging news that we received through a text message from a longtime listener who said that we could share it with our radio audience. David, would you do that, please, sir? Sure, Jimmy. Well, several months ago, we began corresponding with one of our listeners who was going through a really rough patch and in life, and uh, he reached out to see if we might be able to provide some guidance in helping him find a church. And his son has some significant health issues that make regularly attending church a real problem for them. And so as I was on the phone with him and as I was trying to get to Ukraine a couple of weeks ago, he wrote me a very encouraging text. He said, I just wanted to update you and let you know that I found a really good dispensational church in my area. A funny story, he says, the church I found was the original church that I founded prior to my son's medical status change. Uh, Back then, I didn't even know what a dispensational church was, and so I called my old pastor and from the church to ask him for any suggestions regarding dispensationalism and free grace churches in his area, and he said, well, that's us. And uh, he went on to say we had a great conversation with him and his family, and we're going to work out the attendance time so my family can attend. So I'm going to be uh, able to adjust my son's medical schedule just for Sundays. You know, it's crazy, he says, how I didn't realize before, but back when I wasn't grounded in the Word as I am today, and I wanted to tell you that because it, it was an exciting and humbling moment for me, and his church's Fellowship Bible Church of Burlington, Massachusetts, pastored by uh, Larry Klaus. So this was a great conclusion to this story, and if there's anyone else out there who we can help to network, please be sure to let us know. Uh, Network, the key word there, networking, where we can really understand how to walk daily with the Lord. Well, a second listener sent us a question, David, somewhat of a follow-up to the discussion we had last week when we were talking about anti-Semitism and where it started in the Bible and the different religions that actually came out of that initial anti-Semitism. Right, Jimmy. In tracing all the various anti-Semitic paganism throughout the Bible, it really can be difficult. But let's just think in big sweeping terms of how this all played out in God's conflict of the ages. In Genesis 2, we saw that Adam was chosen by God to exercise dominion and uh, function as God's region on the earth. And we know from the descriptions of angels and men, with men being lower than the angels, that the highest chair of Lucifer had expected to be placed into the highest position of rulership over the creation and over man and and the other angels. And when that didn't happen, uh, based upon what we see in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, pride uh, welled up within him, and he launched a long-term campaign against God that involved enticing man to follow him rather than the Creator. 
and the various religions that have started up around the world have been ways to mimic and mock and copy God. And part of the strategy of keeping people's attention turned away from the one true God. So, as I mentioned last week, whether it be the Ammonites and Moabites descended from Lot and his daughters, or the Philistines, which were a seafaring people who invaded from the west, uh, the Edomites or the Anakim or the Canaanites, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, the Medes, the Persians, and the list just goes on and on, Jimmy. Satan has always tried to bring down men of God through temptations and doubts and sins. And for him, it's always uh, about trying to gain the upper hand in this conflict of the ages through power and might and temptation and lust, uh, you name it, and he will try any means possible. That reminds me of a story that we've been following this week, David, which tends to follow along the same line. It's a story first reported in the Christian Post about a high-profile writer for John Piper's ministry who claims that he is no longer a Christian. This has sent shockwaves through that particular ministry. That's true. As you noted, the Christian Post recently reported uh, this man's name, Paul Maxwell. He was a high-profile writer with John Piper's Desiring God Ministry and has announced that he's no longer a Christian. He made the announcement via a post on Instagram saying, what I really miss is connection with people. And he went on to say, What I've discovered is that I'm ready to connect again, and I'm kind of ready not to be angry anymore. I love you guys, and I love all the friendships and support I've built here, but I think it's important to say that I'm just not a Christian anymore, and it feels really good. I'm really happy. And in some ways, Maxwell was uh, somewhat nebulous when he said, I can't wait to discover what kind of connection I can have with all you beautiful people as I try to figure out what's next in life. And then he goes on to say, I love you guys. I'm in a really good spot, probably the best spot of my life. I'm so full of joy for the first time. I love my life. Now, he has a Ph.D. in theology and has written several articles talking about theology and trauma and fitness, and in his website, he invites interested people into a journey of gaining more theological clarity. And there have been people who have tried to reach out to Maxwell regarding his decision, and while some of them warned him about the results of his turning away from the faith, Some of them have expressed their sadness at his decision to turn his back from Jesus Christ, and he acknowledged the love they have for him, but he stopped short of merely saying that he respected their comments. Well, this report uh, urges me to help us find out more about John Piper and his ministry. I know he has quite a following among some, but others may not know so much about him. Can you give us some more details, David? Well, yeah, John was broadly followed around the world in some circles. I've never personally followed him too much. He was born in 1946 in Chattanooga and saved as a young boy. And his father was a traveling evangelist for some 60 years and was saved at age six while on family vacation. And 
He received his Bachelor of Divinity from Fuller Theological Seminary, and in 1980 he became a pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, where he preached his final sermon on Easter Sunday of 2013. Then back in 1986, Piper published his book, Desiring God, Meditations of a Christian Hedonist, and in 1984, he established Desiring God Ministries. Now, Jimmy, I don't want to get into the weeds on this, but he's a five-point Calvinist in his doctrine of salvation, which means that he says that God must cause an elect person to be born again so that he might believe. And he also holds to lordship salvation, meaning that salvation Rather than being a free gift of God that's received by faith, it really becomes a barter. You promise to live for the Lord in an exchange. He saves you. He also holds the double predestination that God chooses some to heaven and some to hell. And he also holds the charismatic theology that the sign gifts of tongues and prophecy and all of these are still being given. And he is not a dispensationalist. So it's really quite a theological jumble. David, as I understand it, Maxwell is only the latest in a string of fairly high-profile men who have just seemed to walk away from ministry and the faith in recent months. Talk to us about that. Well, that's true. Last year, John Steingart, who was a leading vocalist for Hawk Nelson, a Canadian Christian rock band, they announced on social media that he no longer believes in God and saying it didn't just happen overnight. I remember back in 2019, Joshua Harris, the author of the book, I kissed dating goodbye. That sent shockwaves through the evangelical Christian community uh, after he said he was no longer a Christian. He went on to say, many people tell me there's a different way to practice faith, and I want to remain open to that, but I'm not there now. Harris has since marched in several gay pride parades. A short time later, singer and songwriter Marty Sampson, who had been with Hillsong United over 20 years, posted that he was losing his faith and that it didn't bother him. A few years ago, a high-profile Hillsong pastor in New York City, Carl Lentz, who famously baptized Justin Bieber, he ended up in serious problems. Jerry Falwell Jr. is involved with multi-million dollar scandals, and of course, That's not even to talk about Ravi Zacharias, which we haven't touched on, but which has uh, really caused trauma for millions of people. Boy, this is very, very sad. And David, from a biblical perspective, you need to talk with us. What are we to make of someone who walks away from the faith? And what can we do to protect the next person who's faced with a similar decision? Well, Jimmy, I've been in ministry almost 35 years, and it never gets any easier, as you know, and it usually leads to a lot of introspection about what could have been done differently, leads to questions about whether or not such a person was truly a believer to begin with, and we're always searching for answers to make sure it doesn't happen again, and we try to put up barriers in place. And it seems like uh, it's the one you never see coming that hurts the worst, And it's no different than in a family when you have two children and one goes off the rails while the other continues to love the Lord. You know, Jesus had the same situation with Judas. He selected 12, and one of them had a devil. 
Jesus is the one who picked the person who was to be trusted, the keeper of the purse. And the bottom line is we just can't live a life of suspicion concerning who the next one will be that will fall. We responsibly trust people, take them at their word. We love them, give them an opportunity to come back to the Lord if they fall. Remember, Paul says, if someone falls, you who are spiritual, restore that one in a spirit of meekness and humility. And the faith cometh by the word, the hearing of the word of God. I know First John 5, I can know that I am saved. Not hope so, think so, maybe so, but absolutely know so. Well, it does set in our hearts to hear these reports, but uh, indeed, God's word is still absolute. David, thank you for doing the research on this, a subject that many probably would not touch, but I think we needed to get into this discussion today. Thank you so much. We'll have another discussion next week. Thanks, Jimmy. I'll look forward to being with you again. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I'm going to take the reports from my broadcast partners, and we'll take a look at the book and see how it fits into the prophetic scenario found in God's Word. That's all ahead, right here on Prophecy Today. Hey everyone, this is Dave James with the Alliance for Biblical Integrity. You hear me each week discussing current theological issues with Jimmy DeYoung on the Prophecy Today weekend broadcast. We founded the Alliance for Biblical Integrity because we saw a need for an apologetics and discernment ministry that would be an important resource for local churches, schools, and ministry organizations that face ever-changing theological challenges in today's world. I teach many different courses and seminars in the United States and around the world and can tailor the seminars for Sunday schools, Bible studies, and church services, and the courses for weekend conferences of 6 to 10 hours. For more information, you can go to the ABI website at biblicalintegrity.org. That's one word, biblicalintegrity.org, and click on Courses and Seminars on the main menu. You can also contact me personally through the contact page on the ABI website. I look forward to hearing from you. Have you ever wanted to know more about God's plan for the future? Have you ever tried to understand prophetic passages in God's Word, like, say, the book of Revelation, and been frustrated at not being able to figure it out? Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest CD series, Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, will help you gain the ability to understand where to start in your study of prophecy and allow you to read God's Word in a new and exciting way. Understanding God's prophetic Word will allow you to live a pure and productive life until Jesus returns for the church. Keys will help you gain the tools you need to understand the end-time events as foretold in God's Word. Dr. DeYoung lays out a systematic approach to Bible prophecy for those who want to know God's plan for the future. Tracks included are A Roadmap Through the End Times, The Jew in Jerusalem, Daniel and the Antichrist, Ezekiel and Messiah's Temple, and Revelation and Babylon. To order your copy of Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, visit our website at prophecytoday.com. It's time right now here on Prophecy Today for us to take a look at the book. Today on Prophecy Today weekend, we had in-depth reports on current events happening around the world that mainstream media is not covering. My six broadcast partners, all experienced journalists, 
got the information that we needed to know about these geopolitical activities that may well be setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. I pray that you will spread the word about our broadcast so others will be able to have a way of understanding why things are happening in our world as they are today. You can send your friends and family to prophecytoday.com, then to PTRN, Prophecy Today Radio Network, to hear these reports, and they can listen at their convenience. They're archived and will be there at PTRN all of this next week. That's prophecytoday.com, Prophecy Today Radio Network. P-T-R-N. Right now, though, I'm going to give you my prophetic perspective on what my broadcast partners reported. Ken Timmerman, covering geopolitical activities for us, talked about Russia pulling back its troops from the Ukrainian border. You know, Russia will have a major role in the end-time scenario that is found in God's Word. Russia will lead the Islamic nations to try and destroy the Jewish state of Israel. That's Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 2. In that passage, Magog is modern-day Russia. Russia may be involved in other activities, but it's absolute that they will lead the Islamic world in the end times to try to destroy the Jewish state. David Dolan gives us his Middle East news update. Longtime journalist, great experience in that region of the world. And in his Middle East news update today, He reported that Syria may have targeted Israel's nuclear reactor in Dumona, the middle part of the state of Israel. Now, the final report is not in yet, but Bible prophecy does tell us that Syria will be the first nation in the alignment of nations to attack the Jewish state. That's Daniel chapter 11 and verse 40. And in that passage, the king of the north, as explained in Daniel chapter 11, verses 5 and 6, the king of the north will be modern-day Syria. Itamar Marcus, who heads up Palestinian Media Watch, it's a team in Israel that continually monitors the electronic and print media to be able to tell the rest of the world what the Palestinian leaders are really telling the Palestinian people. And what Itamar told us was that the Palestinians may not have an election that is upcoming, which has been expected for over 16 years. The Palestinians, remember, will play a key role in the end times. They're key people at that time in history. If you want to study more about the Palestinians, they're the Edomites, as foretold in Malachi chapter 1, who would return and rebuild. In that passage, the Lord said they will rebuild, but I'll call their borders the borders of wickedness. Ezekiel chapter 35, in verses 5 and 10, talks about in verse 5, the Palestinians, the people of Mount Seir, 
killing the Jews, and in verse 10, then stealing their land. The destiny for the Palestinian people can be found in Obadiah, verses 15 to 18. The Lord will wipe them out as if they had never been. John Rood is the man covering the European Union for us with his update. And every report John gives us looks at the political activities in that region of the world to show us how the stage is being set for the prophetic to be fulfilled. Dr. Don DeYoung, who is an astronomer, made comments on the historic drone flight on Mars and the climate change conference that President Biden led this week. First, let me say that God's word in Isaiah 45:18 said he populated the planet Earth, not any other planet, no life on any other planet, including Mars. And it reveals that the Earth is the location where he would send his son to bring salvation to humankind. And as it relates to climate change, as Don said, it's very slight. There is climate change, but very slight, a degree or two throughout hundreds and thousands of years. Don't forget that God is in charge. He has it all under control. He is controlling that which he created. David James came to the broadcast table with me, and we had a very serious conversation about so-called Christians leaving the faith. You know, God's Word says that they went out from us because they were not part of us. A true Bible-believing, born-again Christian can never deny the faith. The Holy Spirit comes in to live in that individual and no individual can make that Holy Spirit leave. Therefore, we can know that we have eternal life. By the way, First John chapter 5 says, If we have the Son, we have life. These broadcast reports coming from my broadcast partners, very interesting information, and much of it that the mainstream media is not reporting, is key for you and me as we study God's prophetic word and come to an understanding of what is happening in our world today. You know, every report from my broadcast partners and insight into each of their reports gives us the evidence that we are living in the end of times and close to the next event on God's calendar of activities, which is the rapture of the church. That rapture, according to the scriptures, can happen at any moment, even today. And having said that, nothing left for me to say except let's keep looking up until. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today.